My name is Angela Cox and I am the Mindset Mentor and this is the Mindset Mentor Meets Podcast. Now my aim is to discover and share the secrets of success. You'll hear engaging and uplifting interviews with business leaders at the top of their game, all primed to deliver bucketfuls of value and inspiration. We'll bring practical tips, success strategies and golden nuggets of motivation to help you unleash your absolute potential. Now, please do like, share and leave a review if you love this podcast. It really does help others to find us. Thanks for listening and let's jump in now and meet this week's fabulous guest. Hello and welcome along to this special episode, Master Your Mindset. My name's Angela Cox and today I haven't actually got a guest with me. Every month I am planning to bring you an episode which is just me talking to you about different elements of mindset and the first episodes in this series are dedicated to some of the elements of my new book, You're Better Than You Think You Are. And last month I brought you information and hints and tips around the stained glass windows and today I'm going to be talking to you about the second of the shackles which holds us back as human beings, something that I lovingly refer to as the hijack. So settle down, whatever you're doing, I'll be with you for perhaps the next 20-30 minutes, goodness knows really, because I haven't planned it. I don't have a script and I just speak to you from the heart about whatever comes into my mind. So who knows how long it will take, but I hope you'll stay with me all the way through. I thought before I started to get into the content today, I would just have a chat with you about who I am and what I do, because often I'm speaking to guests and the podcast is all about them and rightly so. But I know that I have regular listeners now who might not know much about me and and what I'm all about. So I wanted to let you know that obviously I am a coach and the mindset mentor sort of alludes to that in terms of the work that I do. I tend to work with people who are already quite successful. So I work with leaders in organizations and with entrepreneurs and I think what's perhaps different about the work that I do compared with lots of other coaches is that I like to work the entirety of what's known as the coaching spectrum. So the coaching spectrum moves from one side, which is kind of counseling, and then we go into therapy and psychotherapy. And then there's this kind of non directive coaching, which is you know, put in the client very firmly in the driving seat and using lots of questions to help the client get to the outcomes. Then there's more directional style coaching, which leads through to mentoring and then consulting on the right hand side. Now, one of the things that I pride myself in is my ability to work the entirety of that spectrum. And I've very carefully chosen qualifications and training which will allow me to do that 
at the right level of expertise to bring my clients the best possible outcomes. So in any one situation, whether that be an individual session or a suite of sessions, I am able to flex that whole coaching spectrum according to the needs of my clients. And what I find that that brings is a bigger level of transformation to their individual journey. I often find at the beginning of a coaching experience, clients can be quite lost in terms of what it is that they want and indeed have blind spots about what it is that they really need. So being able to work in a more directional way and to be able to incorporate therapy at the right points to help the client uncover blocks and blind spots and resolve any traumas that are holding them back is actually a really great approach to then get the client to a stage where they are free to think about forward facing. Most coaching looks only at the future and looks in that forward facing way. The coaching that I offer to clients actually incorporates past, present and future. And so we get that greater level of transformation. It's how I love to work. It's how I've been working for the last few years with clients. And it really does bring about some really fabulous outcomes. So that's what I do. Um, I set up my business maybe two and a half years ago. And before that, I worked in consulting and in corporates, uh, senior levels, helping businesses to transform. So very much still in that transformational setting. And I definitely bring some of that learning that I've had from that business transformation space into personal change journeys because it's absolutely transferable. I love what I do. I love to learn. So currently I am just finishing up with Cambridge University in the next month or so on their advanced executive coaching qualification and I'm about to embark on a PhD in professional coaching where I am going to be researching my own methodology and just how impactful that can be. So very exciting times. I have two aspects of the business, the one that I've just described, but I also have a side to the business which offers online programs to people who can't necessarily work with me one-to-one, but want to access the capability that I bring. And there are thousands of people currently working through the programs, which are available to everyone. So that's a little bit more about me and what I do. I'd love it if you'd head over to Instagram and give me a follow. So it's mindset underscore mentor underscore Angela underscore Cox. And every time I say that, I wish I had a shorter Instagram name. It's the same, you know, whenever I do anything, the name is always really, really long. So you know, you're better than you think you are, my latest book. My VA, Calf, likes to use the first letter of each word of that. Well, if you've ever seen that written down as an acronym, I mean, it's just ridiculous, really. And she always laughs at me and says, oh, goodness, you know, why couldn't you have chosen a book with one word? Well, I did do that the first time with my book, Enough, which is much more straightforward and simple to say. But, you know, the title did what the title needed to do. So I'm sure there was method in my madness. So let's get on to the subject for today. So I am going to be talking to you about one of the shackles. 
the essence of you're better than you think you are is I've identified the five shackles that I see holding back human beings day after day after day in my coaching room. And I've identified that these fall into five broad categories and I call these the shackles. And so what I've set out to do in the book is to help you understand why the shackle is the way the shackle is. So how does it keep us stuck? How does it lock us down? And actually, what are some of the keys to unlocking that shackle based on my experience of working with people? So the book is quite informational, but it's also very transformational, as long, of course, as you do the work. And that's the challenging bit for most people, because we all want instant gratification, don't we? We all want to be able to click and the answer is there. I can't tell you how many clients come to see me and they say, oh, I just want to be fixed. And I always say, well, you're not broken. So no matter how much difficulty we are in as human beings, how much adversity we are experiencing, we are not broken. There is nothing wrong with us at our core. There are just layers and layers of experiences, conditioning, learning and circumstances that make us show up as we do. And what we want to be able to do actually is peel back those layers and get to that perfect, beautiful core which has nothing wrong with it and has all of the resources it needs to do anything that we want to do. So the shackles, if you think about them as those layers that are, you know, hiding that core part of us, that bit on the inside that represents everything that we want to be, then what we need to understand is why that happens and what we can do to get out of it. And we need to move away from this need for instant gratification and recognize that this has to be something that we work at. And rather like if you learn a foreign language, for example, and then you stop practicing it, you know, I remember getting an A in French and can barely recall a few words now, sort of, you know, 20 odd years later it's very difficult for me to remember because I've never actually practiced French. And it's the same with all of this stuff. We have to work at it, but we equally have to recognize that it is a continual practice that we have to adhere to as we move forward. And so I want to talk about one of the shackles today. And my aim is through all of the podcasts to kind of touch on them in a bit of detail that you can then go away and pick up the book and help you to kind of digest what I'm saying in the book at that next level of detail. But the one I want to talk to you about today is the hijack. And what, you know, where has that word come from, the hijack? Well, the reason why I chose that word is for me, it kind of really sums up what is happening in this shackle. And When I'm talking about the hijack, I'm talking about the experience that happens in your body when you are triggered by something that is kind of lying beneath that gets stepped on. And this will make more sense as we go through the podcast and that the word hijack will start to make more sense to you too. This shackle is linked to trauma. 
Now, what I don't want you to do when you hear the word trauma is to switch off and say to me or say to yourself, oh, I don't have any of that. Because I can't tell you again how many times I hear that said in my coaching room and then we discover that that isn't actually true. Because every single one of us, unless we've lived in a cotton wool ball for most of our lives, will have experienced trauma at some point. And the thing that I want you to understand is that trauma isn't necessarily just the first thing that we think of when we face into that word. So, you know, as someone who has experienced what I call big T trauma in my childhood, so sexual abuse, that word trauma immediately, when I think of it, brings back abuse memories and, you know, makes me think of abuse in general as a traumatic experience. Somebody else who may have been in a major car crash, for example, when they hear the word trauma, their first thought might be, you know, horrendous car crash. If someone's had a life-altering injury, that might be the way that they think of trauma. If someone's been subjected to domestic violence, that might be their first thought. So we have all of these horrific events that happen in a percentage of people's lives that absolutely represent the word trauma. And when we think of it, and if they were listed, we'd all be able to nod and say, yep, that absolutely encapsulates that word. However, there's another side to trauma, which we perhaps don't think of as trauma in the sense of the word. And that's what brings about this kind of reaction from clients where they say, oh no, I haven't had any traumatic experiences. But actually, they have, it's just that they're not thinking them in the sense of the word because they're comparing these, what I call small T traumas that have happened to them over the years with things like abuse and then believing that they can't possibly be traumatic events. And the types of things that I'm talking about would be Things like a one-off experience of bullying at school, a one-off experience of humiliation, of embarrassment, of anger, of frustration, of the feeling of being discarded. These kind of small T traumas that may be one-offs leave a little blueprint on our soul. And it's that blueprint that gets triggered. And so trauma can be, you know, these grand scale horrific events or series of events that happen to us. But trauma can equally be smaller, perhaps even one-off things that occur that have deep meaning attached to them because of the emotional charge that occurs during the event. And what I've found through my work is that these small T traumas can actually be just as impactful in the way that we show up as human beings in our adult world than some of the big T trauma stuff can be. So it's worth thinking about some of the things that might have happened to you over the years and how they actually impact the way that you show up. Because 
As we were talking about in the last podcast about the stained glass windows, which is linked to the beliefs that we make about ourselves, in these small tea trauma episodes, we can form beliefs about ourselves, which then shape the way that we show up. So both of these shackles become intertwined. But also what can happen when these traumas are triggered is you can get a fight or flight response in your body, which then creates a kind of a sequence of events that makes you behave in a way, I call it the face palm response, where, you know, after the event, when you look back and realize the way that you've behaved, you do kind of want to, you know, do that face palm moment of, oh God, have I just done that again? Because you don't really have control of it in the moment because you revert back to the version of you that was operating at the time of the initial trauma. So let's just put some context around this in a bit more detail so that you can get an understanding of where I'm coming from. So first of all, we need to think about when these traumas occur, whether they be big or small in their nature, how they actually get encoded in the brain. Now, you don't have to study neuroscience as I did to understand this, because I'm going to make this as simple as possible in language that I hope is going to be accessible to everyone, regardless of your background. There needs to be four things in place in order for this to happen to you, in order for this trauma encoding to take place. And the first thing that needs to happen is the event itself. So there needs to be something occurring, whether it is, you know, you being asked to stand up in front of the class and read and everybody laugh at you and you feel that level of humiliation, or whether it be that, you know, your first boyfriend decides to dump you and go off with somebody else and the feelings that that elicits. But there needs to be an event that is happening directly to you. There is something that's called secondary trauma, which is where something is happening to somebody else. But in this instance, it would be happening directly to you and you will be experiencing some level of reaction to the event. Now, the second thing that needs to be in place is what we call the vulnerable landscape in the brain. And some of you will have heard me talking about this before. So there's two landscapes in the brain, the resilient landscape. And if you have one of those, I consider you to be very lucky. And the vulnerable landscape. And the vulnerable landscape is almost kind of an electrochemical state within your brain that determines the way environmental factors impact you as you move forward. And so it's things like, what have you been exposed to in your life? How have your experiences led you to feel? And how do you show up in your environment? So, you know, when I look back at all of the things that I've experienced from from birth, I would say that I have quite a vulnerable landscape in my brain. And therefore, in addition to a traumatic event, lays kind of the perfect foundation for trauma to be encoded. Somebody else who has a resilient landscape in their brain might experience exactly the same event as me and it not impact them whatsoever because they are lacking that vulnerability within their brain and so it doesn't impact them in the same way. 
The next thing that needs to be in place in order for the trauma to encode as a trauma is a feeling of inescapability. And that's a perceived feeling. So, you know, we're talking at a subconscious level here. So I'm in this scenario and it might be, this is dead common, this one. It's never happened to me, but it's really common in the coaching room that, you know, you were 10 years old at school, asked to stand up and read in front of the class. And you felt that you couldn't get out of that situation, even though you really didn't want to do it. And every fiber of your being was saying no. Because there was someone in hierarchy, i.e. a teacher, standing there insisting that you do it, your brain perceives and your body perceives that you are not able to get out of that situation. And therefore, we have this perceived sense of inescapability. And then finally, there's the perception of threat. And so this situation that I am in is going to harm me in some way. And if you perceive that there is threat within the situation and your thalamus in the brain is looking at all the sensory information that comes in and thinking, yep, this is going to harm us, we need to put you on red alert, then you will be in a position where the trauma will be encoded. Now, some of that perceived threat comes from our conditioning. So, for example, if we see a man with a gun approaching us wearing a balaclava, then we have lots of conditioning through movies, through, you know, programs like Crime Watch and the like that tell us that that's a threatening situation. But equally, your conditioning and your environment and the way that you've grown up will also create a level of threat attached to different situations. So, for example, If your parents have always talked you to, you know, stay in the corner, stay quiet, don't say anything, children should be seen and not heard, then actually you being asked to stand up in the classroom and recite something from the book, there is a perception in your subconscious that that is a threat to your well-being. So conditioning plays a big part in how we perceive threat. And so if all of those circumstances are in play when you are in this situation, what will happen is the thalamus in your brain will take in this sensory package of information, all of the contextual information that is happening in that moment, in that situation, and it will go, whoa, we need to just make sure that Angela remembers this situation moving forward so she can protect herself from being in this situation again. And so what it does is it kind of parcels up the package of sensory information into a little chemical cocktail and it passes it to Amy in your brain. Now, Amy is the amygdala. We have two of them. The amygdala is the emotional epicenter of your brain. It's kind of where it all goes off. And the thalamus sorts this information into this chemical cocktail, passes it to Amy and says, store that and store it well. And normally in a non-threatening, escapable situation, what would happen is the sensory information cocktail would get sent to the giant filing cabinet in your brain, which all of our memories get stored in. 
if they are non-threatening. But these perceived harmful memories, they get sent to Amy, the amygdala, and it's almost like I describe it as a landmine. What Amy does is she takes, she, (laughs) what the amygdala does is it takes the cocktail of information and it turns it into a landmine and almost sticks it onto the amygdala. Then what happens, of course, is the thalamus keeps processing the information that is forthcoming. So let's say two years down the line, you are in a situation which has all of our four factors in play that means that we'll encode a trauma. And once again, you are being asked to stand up. And perhaps it's this time, stand up in front of your family and sing a karaoke song. In that instance, the thalamus will turn all of this information that's coming through your senses into the chemical cocktail. And the chemical cocktail will start flowing over the amygdala looking for signs that it recognises. And I want you to imagine this chemical cocktail flowing over all of these little landmines and suddenly it finds the one that relates to you at 10 years old in the school classroom. And what happens is that landmine then gets triggered. So I want you to imagine almost like um, a red alert going off in the brain that goes, you felt this before this wasn't pleasant, this made you feel horrible, humiliated, embarrassed. And so now you're on the verge of being in that situation again, so we're going to make you feel the same feelings. And what happens is your body starts to respond in a physiological way, and I can never say that blinking word, but that's what starts to happen is your body starts to go into fight or flight mode. And all of your senses switch on into like hyper alert, you know, so you can suddenly hear things more acutely. Your eyes will be darting around, wondering what on earth's going on. You might get that kind of rabbit in the headlight type feeling. Your heart rate is going to start quickening. Your breathing will become quicker and more shallow. You might start to sweat. All of these responses the minute that landmine gets triggered, start to take place. And then, then you have the moment where you behave in a way that makes you want to face palm an hour or so later. And honestly, you don't really have any control over it because it is such a natural response to what is happening in your body. And so what we learn is these previous experiences of trauma, whether it be big T or whether it be small, sit there in the landscape of the brain on the amygdala like little landmines just waiting to be set off. And every time one of them is triggered, the way that you respond, the way that you behave will be in quite a knee-jerk way that then is making you feel afterwards almost like a guilt or shame response, which then actually leads you to do shackle five, which is unhelpful habits to try and numb the feeling attached to that. 
So where's the freedom in all of this? Well, the freedom comes from actually identifying the pivotal moment in your history that holds the keys to the landmines. And how do you do that if the memories of the initial event, which is kind of leading you down this trigger route, if that isn't in your conscious awareness? Because quite a lot of the time it won't be. And so when I'm working with leaders and they are describing to me situations in the boardroom where, you know, they are behaving in that face palm way, or they're triggered by something that a colleague said, or, you know, by something that's happened within their teams. What I like to do with them is to actually get them to work with me in this subconscious way. And I'm, you know, I'm not talking about lie on a couch and I'm going to put you into hypnosis because that isn't how it works. But we have the ability to track from that event now in the present through our history in a semi-subconscious way and get to those initial events. And often what happens is a person will say to me, my God, I, you know, I've not thought about that memory for years or I have no conscious memory of that whatsoever. But what we're able to do is uncover the trauma within it. We're then able to neutralize the trauma using a technique and then actually change the belief that was made within that traumatic experience such that it changes the way that we show up today. So, you know, we can coach somebody, you know, for hours and hours and hours about the way that they behave. And they can consciously try to change the way that they behave. But if the way that they're behaving is being triggered by one of these landmines, just coaching alone isn't going to cut it. And actually, we need to work in this psychodynamic way to allow somebody to get free. And it's, what's really, really crazy about this is it's a relatively simple way of working that doesn't take hours and hours and hours, which if you were just using coaching alone, it probably would. And also, if you were using coaching alone, you would get a level of transformation in the short term because conscious awareness can help you to change your behavior. But it's almost like being on a bungee cord. You would make some progress, but then bungee back to the start position again, because you've got this state in your brain that isn't going to allow you to change until you work in a subconscious way. It's a fascinating subject. And I think that, you know, having the awareness that this is the way that the brain operates allows you to give yourself a bit of self-kindness when it comes to some of the ways that you behave. But equally, we don't want to be using that as an excuse. So you know, it's not okay from my perspective to behave in victim mode because of my previous traumatic experiences. I need to take responsibility and I need to learn to behave in different ways and learn to heal those past traumas so that those landmines have their fuses taken out of them and they can't hurt me anymore and nor can they hurt others. So I truly believe that, you know, we can live our lives pretending that all of this stuff doesn't matter and pretending the way that we show up doesn't matter. But ultimately, 
the way that we behave as a result of some of this stuff hurts us and it hurts other people as well. And we are disguising, we are masking that beautiful core that sits on the inside of us all. So this quite informational, this podcast, because it wouldn't be right of me to work in a transformational way without having you face-to-face in front of me in terms of how do we actually remove these traumatic experiences. But if it is something that you're interested in and you know you want to do some work around it, then please do get in touch because, as I say, it doesn't need to be a super long journey and we can get to those root causes within the matter of a few sessions. I hope you found it useful. If you have, you might want to consider reading the book, You're Better Than You Think You Are, because there's two chapters on this, the information, which builds on what I've said today, but also the transformation in terms of some of the exercises you can use within a safe environment to start to neutralise some of these landmines that sit within your brain. Thank you for listening. Over the next few weeks, I will be bringing you some more guests. And then third week in March, there will be another episode just like this one, which will be exploring another one of the shackles. If you want to find out more about me, then you can visit my website, which is www.angela-cox.co.uk. And as I said at the beginning, please do follow me on Instagram. I would love it if you would review these episodes because your reviews make all the difference. And please do share it with your friends as well if you think it would be useful. I wish you a very nice rest of your day. And, you know, in this COVID environment in which we are living, please do stay safe, stay well, and I'll see you in the next episode. I do hope that you enjoyed listening to the Mindset Mentor Meets podcast. If you did, be sure to check out the show notes to access all of those important links. For more about me, visit my website at www.angela-cox.co.uk. Now, I'd really love it if you could subscribe to our channel so that you never miss an episode. And do leave us a five-star review because it really helps us to get noticed. Bye for now. I do hope that you'll tune in next week and take good care.